Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of Streets Ahead. My name is Adam Tranter, and this is an interview I did with Matthew Baldwin from the European Commission. It was recorded at Vela City in Lisbon, but ahead of COP26, the UN's climate change conference being held in Glasgow, it's an interesting look at active travel's importance on the world stage and how we can work together as a global community to communicate best practices to reduce emissions and improve health. Hope you enjoy it. So I'm in Lisbon for the Velo City Conference, which is uh, very nice. It's just been raining, which is not what I expected, having left the, the West Midlands. And uh, being a typical, typical English man abroad, I have uh, found another English man to, 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 to talk to. Um, I'm with Matthew uh, Baldwin. And Matthew, I'm not going to um, try and do your title because you have a ridiculously long job title. But tell me uh, what that is, who you are uh, and what you do. Thanks for having me, Adam. I'm Matthew Baldwin. I work uh, at DG Move, which is the Transport and Mobility Department of the European Commission in the European Union. And my basically my main focus um, of work is on road safety and sustainable urban mobility. So those are the principal focuses of what I do. Um, and so it brought me here as well as you um, to talk a bit about cycling and and it's that's its role in in those in those issues. And of course, it's big. Safety and sustainability go together, can't tackle them separately, should be in the same breath. Um, and it's quite interesting for me always coming here, this is the thing put on by the European Cyclist Federation, what's the European dimension to that when it's often the competence, as we like to call it in Europe, of you know countries, member states, regions or cities. Um, there are things we can do um, and we're keen to do. We are, for example, we're renewing our um, urban mobility framework as we call it uh, which is if you like the enabling framework of, of legislation things like sustainable urban mobility plans hoping to get um, member states to provide us more sustainable mobility data we don't know how many people are 
riding their bikes or taking trips in cities, which is quite crazy, really. We don't know how many people are, are walking, whereas we do collect that data for car trips, car kilometers, rail trips, and so on. So that would complete the picture. Um, and, you know, um, as more and more of us are living in cities, I think what we're up to 70% now, more by 2050, things like road safety and our entire mobility become more urban questions. So I think it's inevitable that we should take them more seriously. Not telling member states what to do, what I call the wagging finger of the European Commission, but but um, developing developing the sort of European dimension, peer pressure, learning from each other. Everyone talks about learning from the Dutch and the Danes here, don't they, about the, yeah. the cycling kings and queens of Europe. But I think there's a lot we can learn from each other in lots of contexts. And from a European Commission point of view, for those that don't uh, don't know, don't understand, um, don't uh, care. Don't, <laughs> quite plausibly don't care, <laughs> no offence intended, um, how, how does it work? Obviously, member states are, are free to make their um, own decision. Does that put you decisions? Does that make, make you a, a kind of chief you know, policy and lobbyist of good ideas to, 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 to member states or is it, can it be more formal than that? Can you, can you uh, start to, you know, implement policy a, a, across uh, obviously the entire block or um, is it, you know, is it down for the country to decide what's, uh, what's right for them? How much of this stuff can you stand, Adam? I could give you chapter and verse. Well, we have a, a, a thing called competence, which is essentially means powers and, and, uh, for example, on technical regulations on car on vehicles, um, essentially for single market reasons. So, if a car is built in Germany, you know, it needs to be sold across yeah. Europe to the same safety standards. We've got very strong powers. Um, again, it's not just the European Commission deciding what to do on its own, but we can set, we can propose, and then the Council, Member States, and Parliament can decide. And we've done some really good things on road safety with successive generations of car legislation, including in the last iteration, we passed new rules requiring uh, much better detection systems of pedestrians and cyclists. And we've also passed the famous intelligence speed assistance, ISA, which has been quite controversial in some places. And, and these are things that then apply at European level. All new, sorry, all new models from 2022 all new cars in 2024. So that's an area where the European Union has competence, the Commission has an important role. On infrastructure, um, on particularly on the bigger roads in Europe, national roads and motorways, we can now require that the needs and interests of what we still call vulnerable road users, motorcyclists, cyclists, pedestrians, are taken into account in, yeah. in how member states do that. So those things that are going on. What can we do on, on things like cycling or walking? Uh, um, a lot less but for example um, a lot of member states have been asking us if we'd be ready to give some guidance um, not quite sure what form that would be in on speed limits so again that's member state rules Ireland and France and Germany all decide what speed limits they're going to do but we might uh, we've been considering saying okay you can do what you like, but we would recommend on this type of road, you should go, the, the limit should be this. And by the way, it's not just about speed limits, it's about enforcement and designing the right kinds of infrastructure. So you see where this is going. Um, in the urban context, there's a lot of talk about uh, 30 kilometer speed limits or 20 miles per hour in the UK. The famous 20s plenty campaign, uh, the great Rod King. 
and everything he's done and I mean great uh, advisedly there um, Love 30 across Europe um, Streets for Life hashtag Streets for Life all of these things are quite correctly are bubbling up from mm. bottom up and again I don't, I don't think it would help even if we had the power for the European Union with the big waves saying, now listen up everyone, everyone's got to do a maximum 30 kilometres now. But I think there's no reason why we shouldn't give guidance, given what we know about road deaths, given what we know about the sustainability impacts in terms of noise and air quality of having these lower speed limits in our towns and cities. And that unquantifiable thing, the livability of a city. You know, here we are, you, you, you can't, here we are sitting in this lovely square, um, there's a few cars around, there's bikes trundling past, but we're not having to compete with the roaring noise of traffic. Well, well we came here because we could speak quietly. <laughs> yes, and that it, it makes all the difference. So I'm, I'm a big personal believer in that stuff, um, and, and, and it's happening, um, not just uh, in a number of member states, uh, in a number of towns in a number of member states, but it's happening globally. The UN's taken it up and has made a big campaign about it this, autumn, this spring. Sorry to ramble on. No, not at all. Um, the, a lot has happened, and I, I often say in in uh, in London, for example, you know, there's been probably ten years worth of change in in ten months. Um, we've seen lots of rapid change. Paris is almost you know unrecognisable now in terms of how many people are cycling. I think it's probably correct to say that it's not all been perfect. There's been you know a lot of rapid race based reallocation, which you know yeah sure it's not going to be popular. Um, anyway, but some of it's probably, you know, been in places because they could rather than that was the exact need. Obviously, Europe's, yeah, Europe, Europe, every city in Europe has had to change the way they do transport. How would you, uh, how would you describe or rate um, how, how we've done, basically? I say how we've done, we've left the European Union, but uh, how, uh, it's gone. how it's gone. Yeah. Well... I mean, sorry, it's a bit of a cliche, or maybe it feels like a cliche because we've been talking a lot about it at this conference. I think COVID made us think not just about um, mobility in cities, but space in cities and how it's shared. Shared between cars and pedestrians, cars and bicyclists. Um, and, you know, it's a finite space and it's a public space. And I think a lot of, I mean, for example, you know, in my street, they took away some car parking spaces because there wasn't room for people to line up to wait to go into the shop because of the COVID limits. So things like this were triggers. And what I find amazing is how many people said, well, this is so much better like this. Let's keep it. So in the commission, we've, you know, we've really welcomed uh, the famous pop-up bike lanes um, and they've popped up all over the place. The numbers are astonishing. And what's encouraging is uh, they've been used. I think the studies show somewhere between 11 and 48%. I just looked at that as I can be precise on those numbers of the bike lanes, generating on their own huge benefits just on health, because we know if you're riding your bike, generally the health benefits are enormous. Um, so it's happened. And, uh, you know, we've discussed that during the conference a bit. Um, yes, yeah, some of the things have been rushed in. But generally speaking, I think pop-up bike lanes, Franz Timmermans here at the conference said there are no regret investments. Mm. I've not heard anyone say, God, I wish we hadn't done that pop-up bike lane. And some of them might not survive. But I think the vast majority will stay, will be made more permanent and safer, by the way, with proper construction of the uh, infrastructure. And the Commission, in fact, has called for the doubling this is just, you know, us calling for it. Uh, the doubling of the provision of safe bike lanes across the EU by by 2030, and I hope we see that because 
you know, it's one of those, if we build it, they will come. There is a link between building those things, getting them used, and then there's a secondary impact if they're then using it safer. And then you get the snowball effect. Everyone's using them. They know it's safer, and then more people use it. And we get what we call the critical mass. Ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that there was a, a lack of data, and it's something that's been sort of boggling my mind for a little bit because made all these rapid changes and in some instances we're not even sure whether well we're not even sure how many people were walking or cycling in the first place and we're not even sure uh whether they're doing it more now um that's not to say all councils have done it in the same way but there seems to be generally a lack of data uh is that unusual like as you say in your in your work you know you have to deal with data all the time um, for, for lots of different decision making or lots of different recommendations do you think active travel and cycling walk cycling and walking are behind the data curve and uh, how much do you think that's probably you know maybe holding us back oh sorry got a, a motorcycle I think he's doing it. a lot of idling in Lisbon I've noticed a lot of people just stop their cars leave their engines on and go and get a coffee yeah, but he's just switched it on he's now he's thinking now he's thinking about where he's going to go Brilliant. Okay. He absolutely didn't need to switch his engine on there. No, no, he didn't. He just wants to. Anyway, (laughs) answer. Data. uh, Yeah, we're definitely we're definitely behind the curve um, on this. And again, back to people. Let's be fair to you know, quote unquote, the other side now. People who don't want to see low traffic neighbourhoods or fifteen minute neighbourhoods or super blocks. It falls on all of us to find the data to prove what's needed, what's the patterns of existing use before and after. Um, and I don't think we're doing anyone any favours if we're not checking into that. Um, and again, it's, it's, it, the more you dig, the more you need to know. You don't need to know just the kilometres travelled because that would show, even in cities, that it's 0.000% is done on bikes or walking. It's the number of trips um, that people are taking by foot or by bike. And even in sort of... Uh, very good countries like the Netherlands, you've still got a high percentage of trips of less than five kilometres that are done by car, even in the Netherlands, um, which could be done by public transport, they could be done by bike or by by foot. So um, let's get that data. Uh, terrible sustainable mobility cliche coming up because if we don't measure it, we can't manage it. Yeah. And now we're now getting a, a, motorcade. a motorcade of policemen. I think. Well, they've got flashing blue lights. Very impressive. There's 15 yeah. bikes have all gone past, and they don't seem to be chaperoning or escorting anyone. I think they've come to take you away, Adam, actually. <laughs> You're a British person, and you care about sustainable mobility. You're in for a 10-stretch. <laughs> yes, that's rather worrying. Uh, Jacques, he's over here. Come and get him. <laughs> um, the... Uh, you said something really interesting in your talk yesterday. Obviously, for those that weren't weren't there, it was it was along the lines of how uh, how important or how important the cycle lobby could be, if you like, cycling lobby. And and obviously, we know that lots of uh, powerful lobbyists base themselves in in Brussels and and try and impact. And you know, with the intelligent speed assistance stuff, that that's you know not led to everyone being totally chuffed let's say um how would you rate the cycling industry's efforts so far and what can it do to 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 get better heard uh, in the corridors of power in in brussels 
Well, it was interesting when we, we heard um, Kevin Main this morning, didn't we, from the Cycling Industries uh, Association, another Brit, abandoned in Brussels. Um, and as I said yesterday, I think both the European Cyclist Federation, which is the users, and the industry of cycling, in, the cycling industries of Europe, uh, a bit underestimate their power. Um, partly that is, as Franz Timmerman said, that the bike is often the emblem, or as you put it, the embodiment of sustainable mobility. Um, and therefore, you almost run a risk sometimes of what I, I coined the phrase, bike washing. You know, you stick a bicycle on it and it's green. You know, the CEO's seen with a, a bike in his vicinity and, he's, and he's, he's fulfilled his sustainable mobility requirements for the year. So you've got to watch that. Um, and often people kind of go, green agenda, put up a pick of a bicycle. Um, and I, I, so obviously you've got to get beyond that. But just let me take one example. There was a big splodge of money called the Recovery and Resilience Facility after COVID. And this was uh, European Union-led efforts to pump some money back into the European economy to drive the recovery. Uh, and we said at the same time, well, let's have that recovery be green uh, and smart. And so we've been encouraging and cajoling and pushing member states to come up with money which serves things like sustainable mobility. And I'm personally quite encouraged. I mean, the ECF have done a lot of work on the numbers to show to see just how much money is being put into cycling. Um, and so that's not just happened by accident. That's happened because the ECF and the cycling industry groups and the city groups like Polis, um, and I'm earliest the Union of uh, Public Transport people, they got together in a coalition and they wrote a series of tough letters to the Commission saying we expect to see this we've got to you know in the cliche build back better um, and therefore the guidelines that the commission put out to the member states stressed the importance of sustainable urban mobility that's just an example of how good their lobbying is and of course you know because I, I very much believe in this and work in this area um, I, 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 I welcome this and I think it's a real signs of progress and sometimes you know you, you underestimate just how good you are uh, they, they, they underestimate how good they are as, as a lobby and how effective they are well, that is promising to hear. That is um, that is good. I, I know I know how important this um, stuff is, and I, I think when we saw the world change very quickly, um, there were a lot of uh, advocacy groups for for cycling who who were uh, fighting in various different governments to get solid investments, selling the benefits, and also even just as simple as making sure uh, bike shops were kept open. That was a big thing, and. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of places, which you know wasn't wasn't a, wasn't a given um, uh, by any means, um, I've found as an English person at this conference in Lisbon with lots of European people, I am probably one of I don't know whether we've all congregated, but one of maybe six English people here. But it's probably a few more than that. But um, they kept hidden, yeah, the under disguise. Yeah, and um, I. I sort of feel a little bit left out. This is not like about politics or anything like that, whether you're remaining or leaving or we are. Um, this is just about whether we can be part as a as a kind of group of progressive people and countries and cities do better for the people in those cities. And, and I often look abroad to, obviously everyone looks at the Netherlands, but I look at like Paris for inspiration. I look at those things and I wonder given that the UK has left the European Union, how uh, how it could, we were with Will Norman yesterday, like how how city leaders can still be part of 
the interesting progress and sharing of knowledge and, and ideas that that uh, we were once part of, but maybe not part of now. If that's uh, if that's just too dreamy of me to think, then that that might be possible. Well, I'm certainly not going to get into the whole Brexit thing uh, on this one, and you know, I know that's not what your question is aimed at. Um, look, I, I think I think. I didn't count up how many Brits were here. We certainly didn't say, right, hands up all British people in the room here. <laughs> and as you can tell by my accent, I'm, I'm, I'm of British origin myself. Um, I think, look, uh, the, the ECF and Polis, they will keep their strong connections with things like UK cycling, with the UK cities are in Polis, they're in C40, they're in lots of fora. And... Um, I'm not just saying this I'm talking to you. I think um, UK cities can and often are quite a strong source of inspiration on sustainable mobility, both in what they've done and in terms of their ambition to do more. Because it's always that, isn't it? We can't just say, oh, this is good, that's enough, let's stop. Um, I don't think anyone, I didn't hear anyone in this conference saying they're not interested in what the UK thinks anymore or sorry, what I should say British cities think or British uh, cycling groups or walking groups think because of Brexit any more than they don't care what Indian or American or Ethiopian groups think. Um, There will be, of course, changes because of Brexit. Um, But, I mean, at at time of speaking, as it were, I know that the UK is still um, negotiating or is about to negotiate, I'm not involved, uh, associated uh, status to things like the Horizon Europe agreements which is how money and research and innovation is doled out and um, I would just say keep the contacts up and, and um, celebrate this. I'm looking at the sign saying let's celebrate the cycle diversity which is a slightly incorrect <laughs> English way of saying <laughs> what we're talking about cycle diversity including the UK is where it's at <laughs> good and we, we share all these um I think we share all these these challenges. I've been listening to lots of different people saying lots of different things about their cities, but it generally starts with the same vibe. You know, our city is a car-dominated one. You know, we have these... Here's another form. Yeah, that is a form of active mobility. Um, And um, it's quite good to be able to get kids to push their own push chairs, isn't it? It sort of defeats the point. Um, We hear lots of people talking about um, their own challenges, and a lot of them are really, really similar... And the one that obviously is for us all is 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 climate change. Uh, how much? Obviously, it's, this is going to sound like a mad question. Like, how <laughs> much? Answer, how much of a big deal is climate change to the European Commission? Obviously, uh, a, a large one. But I, I guess I always give the boiling frog kind of syndrome where analogy where, you know, if we're heated up slowly. We, we won't realise and won't jump out whereas if we're lobbed into a, to, to a, a pot of boiling water then we'll jump out um, straight away uh, and I, I, I wonder whether we'll, move, we'll do all of these bold and progressive things but only when you know the human cost has, has really really become so significant that it can't be ignored by anybody wherever they are in the world rather than doing the right thing now and getting ahead of these uh, actual problems? Well, I think as an American politician once said, I'm glad you asked that question. I really am because um, it's a huge issue for us. And um, and if you're going back to the discussions we had about competences or powers, you can't 
sort out climate change um, city by city or country by country. I mean, frankly, the European Union can't do it on its own either, but this is absolutely a case for acting together and, and uh, for, if you like, supranational legislation. We passed what's called in the EU the, the, the climate law. So we've actually put our targets, which are climate neutrality by 2050 and 55% cli- uh, reduction in climate gases by 2030, into law. They're binding. So the member states and the parliament can argue about how... Uh, we, we will then make proposals and the parliament and the council can argue about you know, the what, but they can't argue about the weather. And that's very important. And so we came forward with what we call our Fit for 55, a 55% reduction package in, in July. And it's self-consciously ambitious because the time is for ambition. And, you know, this is going to sound very sort of... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, crawling to my institution. But, you know, when COVID hit, a lot of people said, OK, well, clearly we're going to have to put action on climate change on hold. You know, everyone's struggling... Um, you know, we're going to have to get through the pandemic first. And the commission, you know, and my ultimate boss, Ursula von der Leyen, the president, she didn't do that. And this time last year, September 2020, she made a speech saying, we're not backing off. We're going to come forward with actions, which Franz Timmermans then delivered uh, in the Commercial Commission in July, to deliver on the 55%. And interestingly, she used this phrase, she said, because we know we can, we've done the studies. Yeah, there are some people who are saying we should go further and faster, and there are some people who are saying we should drag our feet and go a bit slower, but we can deliver 55% reductions, and we will bring forward proposals to do it. Um, now, it won't be without cost, and therefore we also talk about a just transition towards that. And, and I won't go into all the details of the proposal, I'm not sure I can remember them all. Um, but, I mean, it was significant to me that Franz Timmermans yesterday was talking again about cycling as being one of the best ways of getting to climate neutrality in transport. Certainly in the urban context, I think that's right. Um, but it's interesting, when you, and he mentioned the dross transition, and I hear three words that come out to me from this conference, Adam. One is, of course, sustainability, you know, everywhere. Safety. You can't really do sustainability if it's not safety. People aren't going to stay on their bikes if we can't make it safe. And the third word is equity. And somehow we've allowed the bike to be seen as an agent of the liberal metropolitan elite. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, I recall, saw it as the instrument of the losers in life. You know, if you're, <laughs> if you're still riding a bike, you're a loser. If you're on a bus, you're a loser. Um, and how can that be that we've lost or we seem to be losing this? You, you were in a session on the bike, the bike lash. Yes. Weren't you? And how can we lose that argument when, in the town I live in, in Brussels, 50% of the households don't have access to a car? And spoiler alert, it's not the richer 50% that don't have access to a car, it's the poorer ones. So why are we talking about cycling as being an elite thing? I mean, I, 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 I agree that sometimes it can be a sort of you know compulsory vegetarian thing and it shouldn't be that way it should be it should be a mass market thing and you look at the cities where it's really taken root copenhagen amsterdam it's just one of those things everybody does because it's the best way to get around uh, or other cities where walking is a good way to get around it's not a, a revolutionary or a radical or an, or an even ecological statement um god that was a rambling answer um how did I get all that away from what you asked me? <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, we're very proud of what we're doing on 
on climate change. Okay. We're going to push forward. It's going to be a tough year. Climate change, people just ramble about it <laughs> yes. and, and move on to other things. But uh, we, we, we are going to move forward and we're going to, going to, to it's going to be a, a tough year looking at the specific legislative proposals. And we've got to do it. We've got to, got, we've got to deliver. We've got to get there. Tell me about your climate uh, neutral. I'm going to get this wrong. Climate neutral cities, climate. Well, thank you for cities. the chance to bang on about well, that. That's, it's, it's, it's part of the thing. Segue. It's a beautiful segue, which I, I gave you the invitation to ask me about. Um, so, as part of that, um, I've got in my vast, extensive, huge portfolio of activities, I manage the um, a new idea which is called a mission like a mission to be a better person or a mission to Mars. I think that's the idea, is a mission yeah. to Mars notion. A mission to come up with 100 climate-neutral cities across Europe by 2030. And the ultimate goal, of course, is to have all cities to be climate-neutral by 2050, which is, again, you know, existential. If we're going to, to be climate-neutral continent, got to do it with the cities. It's a very exciting project because a lot of cities, if you look at C40 or the Covenant of Mayors, have pledged to do 70% or 80% and that last 20% is tough and so we want to work with the cities, um, we're going to be launching that project later this month coming forward with a call for expression of interest later this year um, and working with cities across different sizes, different levels of preparedness different all shapes um, we want a, a project that looks like Europe, so cities from down south like here in Lisbon or out east um, as part of this it can't just be the usual suspects. Um, and we hope thereby to make a big contribution to the overall 55% reduction target for climate, but also to be, if you like, living labs for cities, not just in Europe, across the world, to do the same. And it's a challenge, big challenge, expensive, um, poses real governance challenges as well to get it done. Uh, and we've got to do it with the citizens. It can't be felt by people this is something we're doing to them. Worst of all, if we're doing it to them from a European level. And that's, but, sort of last thing, and I'll stop rambling on, Adam, but you talk to the mayors and the deputy mayors in this city, their steely determination to deliver, not just on cycling, but on things like climate neutrality, it really puts a spring in your step as, as, as I go back to Brussels. Um, they're so determined to get it done. It's very exciting. It really is. Anyway, that was that's what we're going to try and do. Well, how are you? Just to finish up, how are you going to get back to Brussels? Because I think you uh, you, you, oh. you rode here, didn't you? You cycled here. I did. I had a lovely holiday cycling down here, and I don't want to do overdo the virtue signaling, but it was an amazing trip because I had leaves stacked up from last year. I don't want to promulgate the myth that European civil servants always have time to cycle down to Lisbon. It was a special, a special occasion for me. I am flying back. Yes, OK. And, uh, Sorry to make you admit that two on hours of, uh, Well, you know, flying is part of uh, transport and it'll take two hours and 40 minutes rather than the rather large number of days it took me to cycle slowly yeah. down here, very slowly yeah. down here. No, good on you, good on you. Well, thank you, Matthew. Appreciate, uh, appreciate your time and thank you for being such a... Uh, a good champion for, for active travel both here and uh, in the European Commission it's important that um, we get our message across of the cycling friendly cities will be better places and um, yeah it's uh, rewarding to, to and heartening to see that um, you totally get it and uh, uh, and and are, are able to speak to, to those who can make these bold decisions for, for a better future so thank you Thank you very much, Adam. It's been fun.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Streets Ahead. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you did, we'd love it if you hit subscribe to get our future episodes and left us a review on whatever app store or podcast service provider you use. And you can follow us as well. We're at Pod Streets Ahead on Twitter. Ned, Laura and I will be back soon for another full episode of Streets Ahead. Until then, goodbye.